Happy Valentine's Day. Got my red sweater on. Welcome to the hookup. I want to say four really important things in the quietness of this moment before we get a little rambunctious at the start of this series. Here's four things you really need to know about this series. First of all, this is for a mature audience. Parents, just consider the title of the series. Please plan accordingly. I will speak raw and real, plain and straightforward for four weeks. So please be careful with your kids. Number two, this is for a general audience. This is what is generally true. It's not what is always true, but it is what is generally true. And the third thing is, this is for a practical audience. I love the Bible, I love science, and I love history. And all three are telling us a very similar story that's important to us. History tells us the way the world was. Science tells us the way the world is. And the Bible tells us the way the world ought to be. Now, there's a resource list of books at the bottom of the notes tab if you want to check that out. And then finally, this is for a patient audience. You got to be patient. I'm not going to talk about everything. I am going to talk about a lot of things, but I can't talk about everything. And today I'm just going to talk about some things. Feel free to email me. Feel free to chat it up, right? Daily Grace is going to be like a living conversation throughout the four weeks of this series. Uh, some weeks I'm going to talk about dating. Now, some married people are going to say, you know what? I'm not dating. That has nothing to do with me, except for the fact that experts tell us that one of the main problems with the marriages in America is that we no longer date each other. So the dating sermon might have as much to do with people who are married as it does with people who are dating. Then I'm going to talk about marriage. Some people say, I'm not married, except for the fact that almost 100% of us want to be married and almost 90% of us will be married. And it's really important. Marriage is a big deal. And anytime something's a big deal, we have to plan for it. In this series, I'm going to talk about identity. It's really important. Kierkegaard said, the most common form of despair is not knowing who you are. Mr. Rogers says, before you can love somebody else, you got to love yourself. We got to know who we are. So four very important things, a mature audience, a general audience, a practical audience, and a patient audience. And today you're going to have to show a lot of patience because here's the thing. I want to speak directly to guys. And this is what I want to say to guys. It's time to rule. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Please don't turn, don't turn. Show some patience for me. Just give me 20 minutes to explain what that means. I said that to the staff just a few weeks ago. I was so glad we were on Zoom because I could just feel the fire coming across the screen when I said it. But, but there's an explanation. So please just hang on. So fellas, this is the thing. I want to know why some men are happier and healthier and wealthier and sexier. There's a certain group of men out there. I want that to be you. I know I want it to be me. Why is that? This is what we're going to go after today. So I want you to start your engines because I want to introduce you to the demon. 840 horsepower, zero to 60. And can you believe it? 2.1 seconds with a top speed of over 200 miles an hour. This car is an absolute beast, an awesome, awesome beast. Tremendous raw power. If this car was an animal, it would be a lion. It would be king of the jungle. You'd have to call this car Mufasa. Power. Power is dangerous. Now, I want you to jump in the car with me because I want to show you what this car can do. Love is powerful. We sing for love, we dance for love, we write poetry for love. 
We'll die for love. Helen Fisher, who is on the resource list at the bottom of the notes, she has done so much work in this area. She asked people, do you think about this person that you feel so in love with? And people respond like, what are you talking about? There's never a moment when I don't think about this person. She asked them, would you die for this person? And people respond so nonchalantly, yes, as if you ask them to pass the salt. Yes, I would die. Harvard, Harvard University did a study, 80 years and $25 million. And here is their conclusion about life and about happiness. Happiness is love. Full stop. That's it. Over. End of ball game. Happiness simply. You want to know what happiness is? Happiness, according to Harvard, happiness is love. Now, I want to get to the very first question that everybody's thinking about right now. Here's question number one that you're asking yourself. John, is this your car? Man, I wish it was my car. It's not my car. It's my buddy's car. I don't have a demon. I said, can I borrow your demon since I don't have a demon? He says, sure. I'll give it to you for three hours. And I got to tell you what, this car has so much power. Don't tell my buddy, but man, I stomped on it one time, almost lost it. Not really, but I kind of did. Yes, a lot of power to this car. So I want to thank my buddy who graciously loaned me his demon for the day. Now, here's the second question we're all asking. John, what is this series? What is this series really all about? And here's what it's about. It's about history's very first recorded love story. Now, this story, people have thought about it so much. Rembrandt, Michelangelo, Freud, right? John Milton, Charles Darwin, Beyonce, Ernest Hemingway. Everybody thought about Frankenstein. Yes, we're going to get into all of those things during this series. So many people thought about Adam and Eve because it's the very first recorded love story. And you know, it's in the Bible. You got to ask yourself, why is the Bible always first on things that mean so much to our lives? Over and over again, it's constantly first. Adam and Eve, a careful reading of Genesis chapters one and two, and you realize there's two different versions of the creation story. And some people say, hey, wait a minute, the Bible's telling two different stories, but that's not actually what's going on. The Bible is giving us two very important perspectives on the creation story. In chapter one, verse one, all the way to chapter two, verse number three, it keeps saying heaven and earth, heaven and earth. And all of a sudden there's an inversion. I wanna show you. In verse number four, it says this, Genesis 2, 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth in the heavens, an inversion. So we're getting two really important perspectives. In the first story, in the first perspective, God is out there and he's speaking and things are being created. And it's awesome. In the second story, we'll read this in just a second. God is down in the dirt. Like he's got his sleeves rolled up and he's creating man. And then he's like doing a surgery on man to create woman. He's like calling scalpel, please. And he's doing a surgery. There's an earth to heaven perspective and it's absolutely awesome. And there is an important wordplay because Hebrew's famous for that. Let me read you verse number seven. The Lord God took a handful of soil and made a man. God breathed life into the man and the man started breathing. God's down in the earth, he's in the soil, he's in the dirt. What does that stand for? It means that man is mortal. He's mortal. We are just nature, but the breath of life, which means we aren't just nature. We aren't just earth. God breathes into us 
life. And then verse number 18 of chapter two says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. It's the first negative statement. God is, everything had been good, it had been good, it had been good. And then God says, it's not good for man to be alone. Think about this, everybody. Before Freud started talking about the dangers of isolation and loneliness, thousands of years before Freud started getting, thousands of years before our social scientists started talking about the perils of loneliness, how it negatively affects us mentally, emotionally, and yes, even physically. Thousands of years before that, the Bible was talking about the day. Matter of fact, the very first negative statement given by God in the Bibles is in the Bible is the dangers of loneliness. Isn't that amazing how the Bible is constantly first? How about this suitable helper thing? What exactly is a suitable helper? Is that some, because some people have thought, well, that's a demeaning statement. I'll tell you this. A week from tomorrow, Monday, February 22nd, we're going to have an open Zoom Q&A with Grace's own Dr. Kelly Sanders, and we're going to address this topic. Is the Bible and or God misogynistic? You can start sending questions now, but please, we invite everybody to come to this. You see my uh, email, it's there on the screen. You can shoot me questions, but we want to tackle that topic. Is God or the Bible misogynistic? I want you to think about this. The Bible is a spoken word. So here's what's really going on. Crowds of people aren't reading this. What you have is somebody speaking. It's very dramatic. It's intensely dramatic. It's it's high suspense and anticipation. What's going to happen next? A suitable helper. and Everybody there in the crowd is just waiting with anticipation. Is there going to be more dirt? Is that how Eve is going to be created. How will Eve be created? But none of that happens. There's like this big stop. There's this gap. You got to ask yourself why. This is what happens as there, as it's being read. Verse 19 and 20 says, now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Everybody, it says that God's going to create the suitable helper, which we come to learn is Eve. But all of a sudden we go into all these animals and Adam, he's like on Tinder. He's like a lion, swipe left, a tiger, swipe left, a bear, swipe left. None of that does. What, what, what's going on? Why does God do this? God is helping Adam to come to an understanding of who he is. These animals are not for him. There is a growing dissatisfaction in Adam and God is leading Adam through a process of self-identification. He's helping Adam to wake up and understand who he is. He's not an animal. A lion, a tiger, a bear is not for Adam. Now, There is a French philosopher, his name is Henri Bergson, and he says every human action has its starting point in dissatisfaction. And God is leading Adam to that point. Men, God is leading us in the scriptures to that point of understanding exactly who we are. And God is helping Adam discover who he is. And he is leading him out of despair. Now let's pick the story up, verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. 
While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs, closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. The first recorded words of Adam, the first recorded words of man ever spoken. Just think about that. Here's the first thing that we have recorded in scripture that a man says, he says, at last. It is a poem. It is a love song, at last. Many of us are familiar with the love song Etta James sings, at last, right? You know, that was written by two men. And so Adam says, the man says, at last. He knows this is what I need. And God has awoken him to his true identity and what he needs. He needs a partner. Man needs a partner. And God led him to that process of understanding that he needed a partner. I want to talk about who we are as men. There are three really important things that the scripture quickly is showing us here. First of all, that men are very passionate. We are intensely romantic. This is a love song. Adam, his first words is to quote poetry. Men are intensely romantic. Second thing, we are very, very sexual. This scene here is dripping with sensuality. One Bible scholar says that this man looks at this woman and realizes that their parts fit together and they are magnetically drawn together. Now, I'll stop there with that. But you understand this series is called The Hookup. And I know there's a hookup in the way we hook up. We think about hookup here in the United States of America in the 21st century, but there is a biblical hookup and it is absolutely powerful. And God is showing us, the Bible is showing us right from the start that man is very, very sexual. And lastly, we are very attached. Men are very attached. He says, I'm going to leave my father and mother. King James says he's going to leave and he's going to cleave. Now listen, your father and mother was the strongest bond, the strongest earthly bond that we absolutely have. You just don't do that lightly. You don't walk away. I mean, to walk away from your parents back then, you would never do it. That is your strongest bond. Who are you going to walk away from the strongest bond for? To attach yourself to your partner. And so what we hear right at the beginning in this famous love song is that, first of all, men are very passionate, intensely romantic, very sexual, and very attachment-oriented. Those are the three things that we learn. Now, I want to share a couple things from you. First of all, Eric Fromm. He says, we are social creatures and we're made anxious by our separateness. The desire for interpersonal, notice these words, interpersonal fusion. Sounds a lot like that love song Adam just sang. The interpersonal fusion is the most powerful striving in man. It is the force that keeps the human race together. Thomas Merton said this, love is an intensification of life, a completeness, a fullness, and a wholeness of life. Thousands of years ago, the Bible was speaking to this, which now social scientists, psychologists confirm and 
science confirms. I want to talk about Helen Fisher's work on the brain now. What have we learned about the brain as it pertains to love? I would like to give a public service announcement on the brain, a PSA about the male brain, if I can. Now, Helen Fisher says that there are three clear motivations in our brain and they're deep in our brain. In other words, it's not going to change anytime soon. But a lot of people are asking the question, is technology changing love? No, it's not. Because these areas of our brain that crave this, she says there are three motivations and she's very clear about their motivations, a strong drive in us, and they're deep in our brain, which means they're not changing anytime soon, and they are right next to the same area of our brain where we have hunger and thirst. You're not going to stop being hungry for food anytime soon. You're not going to stop thirsting for water anytime soon, and you're not going to stop thirsting, being driven for these three things. Your brain has a crave. Your brain is craving. It's a brain crave. And your brain wants this. And if it's not getting this, it will be dissatisfied. You'll have a brain drain if you don't satisfy your brain with these three things. So here's the, here's the PSA. The P is for passion. Same thing the Bible is saying. Your male brain, deep in your brain that you're not going to get rid of, Helen Fisher says, after putting hundreds of people in MRIs and studying the brain for a long time and one of the leading voices in the entire world on what's going on in your brain when it comes to love, is you're very passionate. Men, just like the Bible says, you're intensely romantic. You have to accept it. You might as well go ahead and accept the way, I mean, when you watch some kind of rom-com or whatever, you're like, oh, that's girl stuff. You know, no, 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 no. Think about this. Who is the first to say, I love you in a relationship? Is it a man or is it a woman? Most often, it is a man. The man is the first one to say, I love you. We need to go ahead and accept that fact that we are intensely romantic. In my relationship with Krista, I'm not the kind of person that says I love you. I don't run around, you know, say, I love you. I just, I just, this is not me. So after we had been dating for a while, it's like, man, I just, I really love her. And I was thinking about, actually, I thought about it for at least a month because I don't say it easily. Should I say her? And I had those times we're out on a date and I was like, I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it. And then I wouldn't say it. I'd chicken, I wouldn't say it. You ever, does that happen to you? Has that ever happened to you? And so, I would think about it. Finally, one night, sitting in a car in a parking lot, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm sweating, I'm sweating, I'm wondering. And finally, I said, I love you. And in my mind, she was going to say, oh, John, I love you too. all that, But none of that happened. She didn't say anything. She just looked at me, stared at me. Total silence. Didn't say a word. Men are often the first to say, matter of fact, they say, I love you sooner than a woman says, I love you, because we're intensely romantic and we have to get in sync with our brains. So the PSA on the male brain is the P, just like the Bible says, we're very passionate. What's the S? The S is we're very sexual. We're very sexual. This scene with Adam and Eve, obviously is very sexual. In the Bible, Sex is not dirty, it's not sinful, it's not terrible, it's not wrong. It's none of those things. Sex in the Bible is like glue, it's like super glue. It says here that you'll be united, united. When it says the word united, it means that you're super glued together. What it's saying is that sex is powerful, it's a good thing, but powerful things need to be respected because stuff can happen. Here's what Helen Fisher says. She says there's no such thing as casual sex. 
We talk about, oh, I just, I'm just hooking up with somebody. It's just a hookup. There's nothing to it. Oh, no, 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 no. Here's what, here's what science tells us about our brains is that there is no thing, no such thing as casual sex because it's so powerful. She asked people, have you ever had a one night stand that led to a long-term relationship? And you know what? More than 25% of the people said, yes, I've had a one night stand that led to a long-term relationship. You know why? Because sex is powerful and it triggers all kinds of stuff to start happening inside of us and we get attached. You know what? Because of that, you can get attached to the wrong person, like the completely wrong person. But sex, according to the Bible and according to science, is so powerful that it will cause you to become united and attached to the total wrong person. That's how powerful sex is. And that's why the Bible says it's like uniting to somebody, super gluing to somebody else. All right, again, look, the Bible's pro-sex. God created sex. And I know some people have twisted it. Things It's dirty. Maybe that's because sometimes people are just saying, you know what, you got to be careful because we can abuse sex. A book in the Bible that is actually called the holiest book in the Bible is the Song of Solomon. And it is completely about romance. I mean, you got this couple, they're singing to each other, they're dancing to each other, they're reading poetry to each other, they're, they're skipping through parks, they're strolling around by the streams, they're taking uh, weekend escapes with each other, romantic excursions, all kinds. I mean, this dude in this thing is climbing palm trees, he's grabbing a hold of clusters of fruit. I mean, there's all kinds of wonderful things going on. Intensely romantic and very, very sexual. And sex is absolutely powerful. Our brains are motivated for sex and masturbating to porn will not satisfy our brains. It just won't work. Our brains crave so much more. Our brains say, you know what? That's not working for me. I need more. And we're only frustrating our brains if we don't pay attention to the science and we don't pay attention to what God's word said thousands of years ago. Our brains crave so much more. The P our brains are very passionate, men. The S, our brains are very sexual. And lastly, the A is this. Our brains are attachment oriented. Yes. Yes, I said that. Our brain. So what does Adam say? I'm going to leave. I'm going to cleave. I'm going to leave the strongest bond I have. And I'm going to be completely committed to this one person. And Helen Fisher says, our brains, deep in our brains, to satisfy the crave of our brain is to be attached to one other person. Our brains crave that. Porn won't do it. Prostitutes won't do it. And one night stands won't do it. And we can try that. If we're just nature, we can try that. But our brain, because of the breath of God in us, desires so much more. And to do anything else, we're just going to be freaking our brains out. We're going to be draining our brains because it desires so much more. We are attachment oriented. We have to get in sync with our brains. This is a hunger and a thirst, like food and like water, deep in our brains, and our brains is asking for this. You think about this. 86% of cultures around the world allow for polygamy, but only 5 to 10% of the people take up that offer because our brains crave attachment. They are attachment-oriented. So I said at the beginning, how can we be, as men, happier healthier, wealthier, and sexier. How can we be those four critical things? Happier, healthier, wealthier, sexier. 
married men in committed relationships are having the best sex, they're healthier, and they're wealthier, and they're happier. Could it possibly be because they've come in sync with their brains? Could it be because they're not frustrating their brains anymore? Could it just be because our brains are wired that way and we're not just nature? That God has breathed into us the breath of life? Could it be that we have just found that happy place with our brains and we're no longer draining it or frustrating our brains? Should we just take a serious look at what the science is clearly showing us and what the Bible told us thousands and thousands of years ago. Now, here we go. Here's the end. I said in the beginning, it's time to rule. It's time to rule what, John? You know, when you say that statement, people freak out. But here's the thing. It's time to rule what, John? God says it repeatedly. Genesis chapter one, verse number 26. He says, it's time to rule. And if you missed it the first time, two verses later, 128, God says again, it's time to rule. Time to rule what, John? Genesis chapter two, we talked about it a few moments ago. Adam is naming the animals. When you name something in Hebrew scripture, you have power over that. And God is saying, I need you to have power over the animal kingdom. I need you to rule that tiger within you. I need you to rule over that nature because you have the breath of God in you. You are meant to rule over that. You're not just nature and you need to rule You need to rule over those things in your life. You think about it. What if you're just nature? In nature, might makes right. Only the strong survive. The strong eats the weak. In nature, there's nothing but abuse of power. There's abuse of power all over the place in nature. And yet the Hebrew Bible is the only place you get it thousands of years ago where it says you need to speak to power and to call power into account. Well, in nature, there's just power. If you have the power, you do whatever the heck you want. You do what you want. It is the survival of the fittest. Thank God for the Bible. Thank God that the Bible spoke against the abuse of power and that you should rule over nature. I was watching a video this past uh, this past week and it was about a lion eating its cub. And it was just a gruesome scene. And you know what the commentator said? Well, it's just, just nature. How many times do you watch a nature video? It's just nature. Just, it's just, that's just the way it is. It's just nature. You know what? If it's just nature, what you have is, is you have harems. You have some strong animal male who runs all the other males off and he keeps all the females for himself. That's just nature. I don't care. I don't care about you. I don't care about what you want. There's no relationship. You know, almost 100% of mammals do not pair up to raise their kids. In many cases, the male just impregnates as many as he can and just roams off and do whatever the heck he wants. It's just nature. It's just nature. How about chimpanzees? You know how they express the fact that they want to get sexual? They whip out their genitalia and they start waving it around all over the place. That sounds like a Me Too movement waiting to happen. It's just nature. Just nature. But God says you're not just nature. God says you actually need to rule over it. Genesis 1.26, Genesis 1.28, Genesis chapter 2. Rule over nature. Take control of that. That's who you're meant to be. Thank God that God told us that. Because if it wasn't for that, then we would just have nature. And we would have a massive abuse of power going on all over the place. It's time to rule. I want to end with three stories. First of all, Cain. You know what the name Cain means? Cain means to possess. 
it means to exercise power. Now, Cain gets mad with his brother Abel one day. He's so angry. And God comes along to Cain. He says, Cain, notice, notice what he says, Genesis 4, 7. He says, Cain, you need to rule over this. You need to take control. You need to tame the tiger within. You need to rule this animal feeling that you have just to express your power like it happens in just nature. You need to rule it. You know what? Cain refuses to listen. He's like, God, I'm not going to listen to you. And he goes out and he kills his brother Abel. Now, here's what we know about men and women in marriage. We know that women, women, first of all, are far more likely to be influenced by their partner in marriage. But men, we have a tendency to say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be influenced by you. I'm going to do my own thing. Men, by and large, by statistics, are far less likely to be influenced by others. And so Cain says to God, no, 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 you're not going to influence me. I'm a man. I'm going to do my own thing. And God says, you need to rule over that. If you want to be the person that you truly want to be, then you got to rule over that. Number two person, King David. How about King David? Now, kings back in King David's time, they did anything they want. They were the most powerful, which means nobody would question anything they want, except for in the Bible. The Bible says, no, 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 no. There needs to be limits to power. So one day, King David sees one of his best friends, Uriah, he sees Uriah's wife Bathsheba and she was smoking hot. Now, King David already had a harem of beautiful women. But you know what? Power. And it's not rule when it's, when it's just nature. When that's all you are without the breath of God, then you do whatever you want. And so the verbs, there's three powerful verbs here. It says King David saw, he sent, and he took. He just took her because that's what power does. And God says, David, you must tame that tiger. And David lived a frustrating life the rest of his life because he said, I'm not going to rule. And the last person is Jacob. Jacob is having an identity crisis. We're told right at the start of his story that he is having a massive identity crisis. He doesn't know who he is. He wants to be his brother Esau. And so the whole story starts with him grabbing onto Esau's heel. Because he's gripped onto Esau. That's his identity. Now, Esau is a stud. Esau, if he lived today, he'd be Tom Brady. He'd be a superstar athlete. He was a man of the field. He was powerful. That's who he was. And Jacob looked up to him. He idolized him. And you know what made matters worse? Is their father, Isaac, he preferred Esau. And so what do you see Jacob doing in this identity crisis? He's gripping onto Esau. So one day, He makes a meal and he steals his birthright. And the next thing you see, he dresses up in Esau's clothes because he so badly wants to be Esau. And he goes and he takes his blessing. And because he doesn't know who he is, he has to flee. He has to run away from all of his family in a world which you would never do that. He runs away from his family for 20 years. And now as we catch up to him today, we find that Jacob is returning back to Esau. This very impulsive, powerful man. He's getting ready to see him and he hears, Esau, your brother is coming with 400 soldiers. What's going to happen? We don't know. And so the night before Jacob sees Esau, he has a powerful time of prayer with God. And we're told this, this is really important. He wrestles with God all night long. And God says, Jacob, let go of me. And here's, here it is, here it is. This is the night that Jacob's identity is fully realized by him. And God says to Jacob, let me go. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now remember, he stole Esau, his brother's blessing, because he always wanted to be Esau. 
And he says, I won't let you go, God. I'm letting go of Esau to take hold of you, to get your blessing, God, not Esau's blessing. And he stops wanting to be somebody else. There are people, you have friends, you have a world, you have a culture telling you, man, that you're supposed to be this or that. And God's saying, that's not who you are. And all we're doing is messing our brains up. We need to take our identity from God. And Jacob says, I finally got it. I'm letting go of Esau. I'm letting go of what everybody else says I'm supposed to be. And God, I'm going to grasp onto you for the rest of my life. And the very next day, he sees his brother Esau. His brother Esau, instead of killing him, his brother Esau just embraces him. I miss you so much. And then Jacob says this. He says, I'm giving you back your blessing." As Kierkegaard said, the most common form of despair is not being who you are. One biblical scholar said this, says, when he gets to heaven, they're not going to ask him, why weren't you Moses? They're going to ask him, why weren't you you? Everybody, here's the thing. Men, it is time. It is time for us to rule over our tempers, our temptations, and our tendency to walk away. We have got to rule over that. Our brains crave that. We are passionate, we are sexual, and we're attachment-oriented. Our brains want that. We have the, we are not just nature. We have the breath of life in us. Now look, this car, the demon, is absolutely awesome. It's not a minivan. It knows it's not a minivan. It's not an SUV. It's not some kind of crossover. It is 840 horsepower on top of four wheels. It knows exactly what it is, and it does it really well. There's no identity of crisis with this car. It is awesome, and it does it great. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Men, you have got to be with a group of men who are helping you to understand who you are in the eyes of God and to grab onto God and stop grabbing onto Esau. You need a group. Get in a group, in a community group. Get in a team. Tom Brady is awesome, but he didn't win that Super Bowl by himself. Every man needs a team. You got to make sure you're in a team. We're going to have something called the Men's Summit. March the 20th, you're going to want to sign up for that. But you've got to be with a group of people because there's all kinds of voices telling you, you should be this and you should be this and you should be this. But God is telling you exactly what your brain is telling you. And until you get in sync with your brain, you're going to have brain drain. Out of sync with your brain. That's where you... Now, let's end with this. Matthew West is going to sing a song. Sing along with them. The topic, the message of the song, so important. This has been at the top of the Christian charts for 17 weeks straight. You know what the song's about? Identity. The name of the song, Hello, My Name Is. What is your name? We are thrilled to have Matthew West sing this song to us now. Just enjoy it and receive its message.